Thanks for tuning in to the 168 Podcast, a podcast from Mitchell Knight and Jordan Bird of the Clarence Church of Christ, aimed at helping you connect Sunday worship with everyday life. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the 168 Podcast. I'm Mitch Knight, joined by Jordan Bird. Today, we're going to be talking about how Jesus defies our expectations with his upside-down kingdom. Yeah, so this phrase or the phrasing of the upside-down kingdom or the upside-down nature of the life of God and the life of a Christian, those following Jesus, I originally, I think, got from uh, the pastor and author Greg Boyd and in some of his writings. And I'm also, I'm actually going to reference a snippet from his book, actually, I forgot I have the book with me, so let me go get that. Mitch, why don't you fill in for now? We'll be, we'll be right back. So yeah, the the concept of the Upside Down Kingdom, there's a snippet from Greg Boyd's book, uh, The Myth of a Christian Nation, which I've had for a while, and I heard about, I, I want to say it's like early 2000s or mid-2000s, somewhere in there. It's probably about when I came across it. And in general, Greg Boyd and a lot of his speaking, preaching, writing, talks about, one, talks about Jesus being the center of the Christian faith, but then talking about the life that Jesus taught about, preached about, you know, obviously uh, exemplified in front of people, and how Jesus' way of life looks very different from probably the average way of life that, that we're used to. And, and it's different because Jesus does things the way according to God's wisdom and according to God's goodness. And it looks odd to the world that is separated from, from God. And so from the world's vantage point, I mean, the terminology upside down kingdom really comes from the world's vantage point because it looks odd. It looks weird. It looks backwards. It looks funny because it, it doesn't look how it should from the world's point of view, from the point of view of a person who's separated from God. But I think for followers of Jesus, it's a helpful phrase or helpful way to grasp the kind of life that we're called to as followers of Jesus, that our life in following Jesus really should look a little odd to the world around us because we we live differently. We live according to a different worldview, a different set of values, a whole lot of different things like that. And uh, in within the book, Greg Boyd, um, actually this is taken from Greg Boyd's uh website where he has a blog and a lot of times they reference some of the things he's written and the some snippets that come out of this book in uh, it's in pages 46 through 48 in in this book here and they just list at least five or they've kind of condensed it down to five different things that he points out and these aren't exhausted by any means but it's a way to maybe start talking about this topic and just a little we're using it as an inroad for us to have this conversation but he talks about how there are five distinct things that that he's at least pointed out that make jesus way of life different from the way of life of the world the first one he talks about is a contrast of trusts and basically just the idea that followers of jesus trust in god and the power of God and what God has done through Jesus compared to the world that trusts in the might and ability of 
you know, a person or one person or maybe a political leader or something like that. But you can see where there's a compare and contrast of where trust is put and, and who that trust is put in. So that's, that's one uh, difference that he notes. So a second one is a contrast of aims. And the idea there is, uh, how he describes it as the world often seeks to control behavior. So that's like the aim of the world is to kind of manipulate the world to a certain outcome often for one's own personal gain in the process. Whereas the kingdom of God or the life of Jesus is about transformation. It's about transforming the person, not necessarily coerced in not a coercive way for sure, but in a like wooing and a loving and a helping the person come to the conclusion that like they should want that way of life, but allowing God's spirit to then invade them and transform them from the inside out. So it's, there's the difference of manipulation contrasted to transformation that comes from from God. And the third difference that he notes is that that there's a contrast or a difference of scopes. And here he talks about how the world often, its worldview is through usually tribalistic lenses. So maybe think locally to, to those of us who live where I live, People can often think of themselves as like an American opposed to something else. Like that tribe, that tribe of being an American or someone who lives in the United States is like the boundaries of, of a worldview, if you will, or a New Yorker or a Western New Yorker or a Sabres fan versus a Rangers fan or something like that or a Bills fan versus being a Giants fan. Like, you know, those can be maybe kind of intrinsic in or not intrinsic, but just like shallow things but uh but they still they do point to like where one's world worldview might be and sort of some boundaries to it and and he's just pointing out that the way of the world is often you can see the way of the world in tribalistic terms i mean we see this in politics all the time right like the democrat republican divide and and even this morning on the news when i was driving uh to the church I was almost shocked. Like, I mean, I feel like we talk about politics this way, but like surely most people don't think this way. And they had a texter text into the show I was listening to because they were talking about the Buffalo mayoral race. And they were talking about how the texter said, I basically vote party line all the way down, even if I don't know who they are. And I was like, wow, I got someone actually admit that's how they actually vote. But even in that example, you have that tribalistic mentality of like, they're voting according to a worldview or set of values that a certain party holds to, you know, their tribe, if you will, in that sense. Whereas the kingdom of God is not about tribalistic things. I mean, it is about following Jesus and Jesus alone. That's more a person than it is a tribe per se. But in following Jesus and in allowing God to transform each and every one of us through Christ and through his spirit, we are united together and it's it's meant to bring people into that one tribe, if you want to say it that way, rather than being like you're in, you're out, you know that kind of a thing. So that that's one difference that he mentions. Another difference that he talks about is a contrast of responses, and this has more to do with the the world often responds to things in the world by a tit for tat thing. Like if you hurt me, I'm gonna hurt you back. I mean, I, I live with this daily. I feel like with my kids, like <laughs> it's just like who what our sinful nature is. Just, drawn to whereas the reality of the kingdom of god is to love those who might mistreat us or to do good in the face of those who are maybe trying to 
wish ill will on us or whatever it may be. It's, you know, returning evil with good, that mentality, not a returning it for the thing that was done to you. So there's, there's different responses. And then lastly, uh, he talks about it's a contrast or a difference of, of battles and just the, the difference of how the world often is focused on people who are the issue rather than the kingdom of God is about spiritual realities that are the issue. Ultimately, it's not people per se, but it's people who are being influenced or guided by spiritual realities. And so the idea that like our battles, not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers of this world, that, that, that idea that the apostle Paul talks about. So those, those are just five differences that Greg Boyd points out, but it's that idea that, that concept that we want to talk about a little bit further and point out some of the the things we notice in the life of a follower of Jesus that stand out in this way that that probably look upside down to the world that is observing a follower of Jesus. And so we're going to get into some of those uh, here now. The first one I I thought of, that at least I wrote down, that we're going to talk about here is the idea of well, actually, first, let me back up. Mitch, do you want to hire, or talk about anything related to uh, those five things that Greg Boyd pointed out? Then we'll get into our own here. To get into the last thing that you just mentioned, I think the issue comes down to humanity's expectation of what Jesus should be doing or should have done. But God decided to tackle our issues in a much different way than we would have anticipated. So I think it's a matter of expectations. Humanity, like you mentioned in your last point about that article about they want to deal with the evil, the consequences of that evil, the decision-making, or not the decision-making, but the, the decisions that are made and how we you know, punish wrongdoing and how we move forward and what we can do in the power of humanity. God wanted to tackle things based on the source of the evil and the wrongdoing, which is you know, inside of us. It's our own sinful nature that pulls and drags us away to the point where, you know, sin is conceived and it leads to death. That's, it's the spiritual warfare that God's more interested in. And I think you can see, um, the dichotomy of expectation between the church and the people of the world and just the way, like, you'll hear people talk about Jesus. Like they say, well, I'm pretty sure Jesus wouldn't approve of that. Or I'm pretty sure Jesus wouldn't do that as if we know what Jesus is going to do, or we can expect what Jesus is going to do when we have all these scriptural examples of him completely going outside of, you know, the box of our imagination and surprising us in ways that are marvelous. So I think for me, it just always comes back to the fact that we can't pigeonhole Jesus into the box of our expectations. And he's proven that time and again, he's here to deal with the spiritual side of things because we know that, you know, there's a, there's going to be a chapter two where there's no sadness, no tears. Right now, we're trying to just get as many people on board with that transformation, like you mentioned, as possible. Yeah. There's a point about that I think we'll touch back here after a bit, if we can circle back to it. And um, the first point, kind of going back to our own examples that I think we'll touch on here, is one that I thought of is when you look at the life of Jesus, we see that his whole life is oriented toward giving of his life for the benefit of others, which when you look at the world around us, that's usually not the 
method or the avenue through which it's trying to live. Usually it's more of a take to benefit me. So take from another to benefit me. So like, but it's based in this worldview that like there's only so much. And, and if, and if this world is all there is on this side of death, then get as much as I can now to whatever benefits me. And that can be at the expense of others. And it can be easy for us to think of like, well, I don't maybe, you know, I don't do that. Like, do I, you know, I mean, maybe not in the grandest of schemes. We don't like, maybe we're not part of like a Ponzi scheme to get everybody's money, but do we do that in little ways? I mean, just think about whatever a thing you enjoy. Like if there's a certain kind of food that you like and you're at a party and you're like, I hope I, you know, you try to get the most of that food that you enjoy while it's still there before someone else can, like, that's just the same concept, just in a more minute form of like, get what I can for me, but it's at the expense of others, right? So that they can't have it. I mean, there's an expense that given at somebody, whereas with Jesus, the expense is always at himself, not another person, but in giving of himself, others are given life, but he also is given life. This is the whole like mind blowing dynamic of the resurrection, right? Like in giving of himself, he gains life. And it's, you know, that whole teaching Jesus talks about, like, if you lose your life, you'll save it, which like, how does giving up what I want actually gain me anything in the end? Like it doesn't compute to our ungodly mindset, if you will. And so that, that's one thing that, that sticks out to me in the life of following Jesus. Um, you want to add on to that or flesh that out anymore in your way? Yeah, not to be like overly reductionistic about it, but I mean, you can almost trace all of humanity's problems to that selfish desire of the worldly philosophy of I'm going to do anything it takes to benefit myself, even if it means taking from others. You know, so like you said, it's take, take, take for self benefit, even if that's at the benefit or the um, detriment of other people. But Christian love and agape love that Jordan was talking about through Jesus is about, it's always about self-giving. It's giving of yourself, sacrificing yourself for someone else's benefit. And I think that's how we were intended to be living in our relationship with God from the beginning, even in the garden. I mean, it was supposed to be, it was a give and give relationship. It was God created Adam and Eve. He loved them. He wanted Adam and Eve to love them back. And it was just kind of this outpouring of love and this tethered connection. But eventually, you know, I mean, you read through the Old Testament, it just continually got worse and worse about, well, I'm going to do what's right for me. I'm going to do this. You know, I'm going to complain because what I have isn't good enough. There's all kinds of examples of that. But I think that's a really interesting point that you made. So I just want to touch on that again. Yeah. So another point that you brought up, Mitch, and you can rephrase it how you want. That's just how I wrote it down. But the idea that Jesus makes himself known or becomes present in really like unassuming ways or very like mundane or kind of cloaked the most ways. Like he kind of sneaks in, sneaks out. Like it's, he's not about the pomp and circumstance. He's not about getting on a megaphone to announce himself. Uh, and one example that you pointed out was Jesus appearing to the disciples after his resurrection and revealing revealing his resurrected state to them. So you want to describe that a little bit further? Yeah, and I mean, even rewinding a little bit from that point, 
I mean, people expected this Messiah to be the great military leader that would overthrow nations and completely put his authority above everybody else. And in a way, he did that, just not in the way we expected. I mean, he died on a cross. People look at that and they're like, well, well, so this is the Messiah? He's just being hung on a tree. He's becoming a curse. But in doing that, he overthrows the largest enemy force that threatened humanity of, you know, Satan's army of his fallen angels and demons. I mean, he broke the hold of sin and death over our lives. And likewise, you would expect this grand Messiah to appear back to his disciples in this Michael Bay explosion type of sense with, you know, all the glory of the angels. But instead, first he's walking with his disciples along the road and they were kept from recognizing him. He was just talking. Then he found Peter once again at the lake and reenacted the time uh, of the Last Supper, kind of. Is that what you're talking about? No, I was just going to say reenacting the the first time they caught fish. Oh, yeah, the first time that he called them, yeah. I don't know why I stumbled over my words there. but it, it I was, was thinking about the meal parts. So that's where I was going. No, that's that's a good yeah, point, the, too. The re, re, kind of reenacting his initial call of them to follow after him. So that's like even like super mundane because he did the same boring thing twice. I mean, he's just standing on the shore. He's like, friends, you haven't caught any fish. Put the net on that side, which is probably, you know, aggravating to a professional fisherman. And they do that, and then they finally recognize who he is. And that's when, you know, once again, Jesus doesn't reinstate Peter with explosions, power, lighting, and all this kind of cool stuff. It's just with words. It's just with authority. It's with direct, intimate conversation. So it's never about status for Jesus. It's always about giving up that status and like giving up uh this image that was placed on him before he even came about being this majestic military leader and instead humbling himself and becoming a servant for our sakes he doesn't care about his image he cares about what he can give of himself to benefit his creation so that's something that i really resonate with yeah i i thought that was a good example of one way we see Jesus, you know, beyond the stuff he taught, but like living it out in this way that to transform the world in the way he talks about doing and, and promises to do, he does it in a way that's very different than how if we were to set out, we would make that happen. I mean, look at almost any of the movements or realities that people are investing in right now to change not the entire world necessarily, but just like the nation they live in or the state they live in or the community they live in. And it's generally not all the time, but generally if we could get this person there, but if we keep, you know, but they need that platform. I mean, even the locally here, the Buffalo mayoral race is somewhat this whole thing all the way down to the, the ballot and where the, the current mayor isn't on the ballot because of the primary and he lost out in the primary, but a lot of the influence or, you know, a lot of the potential of someone being voted has to do with that person being on a ballot. So it's like having that platform where your name is there to, so where you can be voted on. But again, it's just all about having someone there and having that platform to do it or having the media access. But like all of these are like putting someone in the spotlight, which is very different than what Jesus generally did. It's not to say he was never in the spotlight, but it wasn't his 
MO of how to move his mission forward. He usually did it through things that really wouldn't have even made the news or they wouldn't have been news had, you know, someone not found out about it, maybe said something about it. And even some of those, he says, you know, let's keep this quiet. I don't want I don't want, you know, this to be a big deal yet. And, you know, we're not God. We don't pretend to know exactly why and how that all was the way Jesus wanted to do it. But it ultimately led to him being crucified, which led to his resurrection. And all of that is not the, I mean, the bottom line is that's just not the way we would have approached saving humanity. <laughs> we would have probably done it a very different way or with a different method. And we would have done it through sort of being out in front and, and having all the resources at our disposal. And that's just very much not how Jesus, I mean, all intents and purposes, he was really just an average, if not almost poor person. Like he didn't, he traveled around. He was a traveling salesman almost. Like, I mean, he didn't necessarily sell stuff, but he had that kind of life to some degree, at least what we have a glimpse of in the new Testament. So another one that, that you pointed out, another, uh, way of kind of looking at this idea is how Jesus used ordinary people to reach other ordinary people. And and I guess we've kind of talked about this a little bit just in who Jesus is and the way of life he lived, but do you want to flesh that out a little bit more, that idea that you brought up? Right. So I, you read through Acts and there was a big thing with uh, one of the Christian youth conferences we, or not conferences, but events we went to recently. The question is what now after Jesus ascended? Um, but backing up from that, after he resurrected, there was probably expectations from human beings about, okay, well, you know, now he's established in power and glory. He's going to do these awesome things. He's going to put himself above all the nations. This is going to be so sick. And then he says in Matthew 28, go therefore making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I have commanded. I will be with you. I will surely be with you to the end of the age. And then whoop, he's gone. And it comes to people like us to spread the message of Christ's majesty. So again, that's another way of just kind of showing how God wants to do things in a very understated but profound manner about using broken people to reach other broken people. He wants us to be a community. He wants us to live in his righteousness as a unit. Um, and he wants us to be the evangelizers. He doesn't want to force anybody into anything. He wants, you know, his creation to willingly and lovingly choose him, which is where I, you know, I think we come in. We're the messengers of that. He doesn't beat anybody over the head. Instead, he sends us to be the hands and feet of his son um, until he comes back. Yeah. Yeah. Overall in the new Testament or just really throughout all of scripture, you see God using ordinary people. I mean, go back to, I mean, even Moses, I mean, as much as he was like in Pharaoh's house, he was out tending sheep in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it was not the person you would expect someone to like deliver an entire people group out of Egypt. It's just, I mean, at one time maybe you would have thought, but then again, God doesn't use Moses in the position he, you know, we would think he would have been in to do that. Like he was in Pharaoh's house, but then... And you would think then he'd have the, the sway, if you will, to, to do something. But it's not in that position that God uses Moses. And then, I mean, that just plays out in a whole lot of other different scenarios throughout Scripture. And, I mean, but there are times where God does use people of influence to move things. But then, 
a lot of times there are people who don't even know they're doing what God wants. Like Zerubbabel in the Old Testament helps bring God's people back to the promised land. But he, I mean, we kind of retrospectively, I guess, know. I mean, God kind of foretold that happening. Or no, Cyrus is what I'm thinking of. Cyrus, you know, brought God's people back to the promised land. And it wasn't like he was this Jewish leader. He was just doing what seemed to probably benefit him at the time. And so God used someone of influence, but kind of moved or manipulated his purposes, if you will, to fulfill God's purposes. But then when you have, you know, people who are called to do like what would seem like to be prominent things, you have like Mary, who is this person going to be marrying a carpenter, like not the most like, you know, it wasn't like Joseph was going to be the next governor of Israel or be in this like position to do something of, of power. It's almost like a, a messed up situation where like they would have been looked down upon by her being pregnant, them not even being married yet. Like they already looked like they, the whole thing was a mess from the get go. Yet it's through that situation that God brings about his presence here on earth through Jesus and, and him being born. And yeah, I mean, from just all the, the different people that Jesus calls, I mean, fishermen, you know, no, again, nothing super spectacular of a job, just your average ordinary job probably in Jesus' day. But then again, you have Jesus calling people like tax collectors and um, people who are revolutionaries. But he calls these people who, to be in this on the same mission, who would have had kind of competing ideas according to the world's standards, yet God works in it through their life to transform them and they become on a common mission to live out the way of life that he calls them to. So yeah, that, that just runs all the way throughout scripture for sure. Another, uh, avenue of this topic that, that I thought of, and this isn't, I mean, it's, it's in scripture. It's definitely there in Acts, especially if, when you look at the initial growth of the church. But even if you look into church history past what we have in scripture, you have this dynamic and it still happens even today of the thing that tends to cause or you know, the most growth for the church often tends to be times of persecution. So it's not when the church has like all the say, say so in a culture that it's like booming and growing. It's not to say that there are moments or haven't been moments like that in history, but there are a lot of moments in history where you can look and see that the church grows when it's trying to be suppressed. <laughs> I mean, be that China right now where you have like most of the churches, like this underground church and it's like, bustling with people but it's not like super known on the like ground level or like from a media standpoint or you know whatever it may be and you see that just again throughout throughout history where the church has has grown when it was trying to be stomped out and again it's like that upside down nature of the thing you think would cause it to grow isn't the thing that causes it to grow and the thing you think that would stomp it out is the thing that actually causes it to grow it's upside down again according to the world's thinking you want to touch on that that concept at all? Yeah, I mean, it's just another unexpected thing. I mean, it's what Jesus talked about in the mustard seed. Like, it's this tiny seed that grows to incredible proportion. And, I mean, you can even set the precedent for persecution growing the church based on what has already happened in history. I mean, look where we look where we are now, today, and look where we started from in Scripture with people being sawed in half, fed to lions, 
if anything, that just is kind of proving that what we're doing is real. I mean, people, it even says in scripture, like very rarely people are willing to die for even like an unrighteous or for a righteous person. But for a righteous person, some would be willing to die. But even then, it's so rare. But all these people are dying, laying down their lives for this cause that just kind of gives us an inkling into, okay, well, this stuff is for real. Like, there really is an enemy who's trying to stomp this out. And if people are trying to proclaim it to the point where they're putting their lives on the lines, then there might be something worth looking into here. I mean, I think that's a powerful part of our witness. Yeah. One other area I was just going to generally point um, the viewers and listeners to where we see a lot of this upside down nature playing out is in the Sermon on the Mount or what we call the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospels. I mean, Matthew 5 encapsulates a lot of these. And I'll just kind of go through these and just touch on them a little bit, but we won't go super deep into them. But just to be, the beginning of, or the Beatitudes is also what it's often referred to as, but in verse 3 of chapter 5 in Matthew, Jesus here is, you know, teaching, preaching, the, proclaiming to the crowds at that time on the, on the mountainside, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. So, I mean, just right off the bat, like, we wouldn't think those who are blessed are those who are poor, you know, in any sort of poverty, let alone, like, poor of spirit or, like, you know, cheerfulness, that kind of a thing, if you will. But then he goes on to say, like, but it, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, because it's those people who actually are the ones who inhabit the kingdom of heaven. So again, it's that upside down nature. And then he goes on to say like, blessed are those who mourn. So again, we wouldn't think of those who mourn as being blessed people. Often we think of them as like, they're the people to be pitied, not to Mm -hmm. think of, Oh, look how great, you know, of a life that they have, but they can, they're blessed because they'll be comforted or comforted in God's kingdom. And then you have like, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Again, those who, I mean, meekness is one of those words we don't probably use often and can maybe be taken as like just totally passive. But my understanding of meekness has always been uh, the image of a horse. Like a horse is like power and energy that is just waiting to be used, but it's controlled. Like it, it could do a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, we even use the term horsepower to talk about the amount of power something can have. But if a horse is just standing still, like there, there's a meekness there in that manner because it's not erratic. It's not crazy, but it's power that, that is under control. And that's, that's the idea of meekness that at least how I've always understood it. But again, like controlled. Being controlled or self-controlled is not the way we often think of getting things done. Usually it's like, well, I got to go off on that person to get this thing to happen. And yet Jesus is saying, no, like the people who are blessed and the people who will inherit the earth and and its transformation when when I renew it are those who are control their anger, control their emotions, can you know, can can live a self-controlled life. And I'll just kind of read through the rest of these and not touch them a whole lot, but you know, Following that says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. Most of those are not qualities we would often say are a person's blessed uh, because they th- that's the demeanor or the, the position of their life at this moment. Um 
especially those who are persecuted, we usually think they're lacking of life, not that they're going to be gaining life in the process. But yet God's approach toward life is very upside down. You want to touch on that at all? Yeah, again, coming back to the point of Jesus and God's plan defying our expectations is just in, think about the nuns of the world, like the no religious affiliation, atheists, agnostics, whatever, or even just the layman on the street. If you ask them, okay, well, what do you think is necessary for you to get to heaven? What, what are they going to say? They're going to probably say, well, I think as long as you're a good person, you you know put in a lot of effort, you're you know seen as a good person by others, you're this well-respected figure, you know, you'll you'll probably go to heaven because you know that's that's what you deserve, but. Really, Jesus is kind of turning the tables on that and also the pharisaical preachers of the law um, in trying to be this legalistic, well, if I just do this, do this, and don't do that, and don't do that, you know, I'll be filled, I'll be covered. But really, it's about people who are in such dire straits that they understand that they have a need or a lack that needs to be filled only by Jesus. I mean, it's more about dependency rather than trying to prove yourself. And I think that's kind of what he's getting at. It's these people in these dire straits are tethered to Christ because they know that they need God. They're in that hum- that posture of humility. They're the ones that are going to be seeking after the kingdom. Yeah, and which harkens back to one of the points that's in that synopsis from Greg Boyd's book of where is your trust? <laughs> I mean, some of the the attitudes we would expect of how to move things forward in life have to do with like trusting in our own ability. And if, I mean, most of us probably aren't going to trust that like, well, if I'm just patient, it'll work out. Well, if I'm just meek and don't, you know, make it happen kind of a thing, then, you know, but all that has to do with like trusting in us, not trusting in the way of life or trusting in God and living in and through his way of life. But the, the, the aim of the trust or the object of our trust is really what's ultimately different, which you just pointed out. Yeah, that's good. Uh, one other thing that, well, actually, this is one you pointed out. Uh, you pointed out how God tends to call the kind of people maybe we often wouldn't expect to do the things that, that he's, you know, initiated in the world to start his mission to bring people into the way of life of, of following Jesus. And do you want to touch on that a little bit? I think a lot of people put a lot of weight behind the status and stature of somebody as like the end all be all and their influence on society. And God calls people that we don't necessarily expect to preach the good news. And one of those people was Saul who was literally persecuting and killing members of the church. I mean, he was a murderer and he was called to be a post-resurrection apostle to the Gentiles. And, you know, Ananias wanted nothing to do with Saul, but he's like, okay, fine. You know, Lord, if you want me to go to him, I will. And then, I mean, Saul turned on a dime and completely did wonderful things as the apostle Paul. And I think this kind of is, a loose parallel to today. I mean, I think it's like people's aghast reactions when it comes to like Catholic priests and stuff like that about just looking at the title, the status and what they should be doing. And like this kind of list of things is like, how could they do that? How could they allow themselves to be caught in this web of sin where it's like, well, 
you know, in your own way, it might not be that, but you're in a web of sin too. It doesn't mean that God can't take you from where you're at, move you to where he wants you, and then use you for his purpose in other people's lives. I mean, there's no, I feel like in the human worldview, there's like no chance of redemption. I mean, you see that in like cancel culture stuff where one thing someone said 10 years ago is enough to completely remove them from society. And I mean, if you had a video camera on you your entire life, there are probably some stupid things that you wouldn't want the whole world to see. I think everyone feels that way. But, you know, God knows that stuff and still wants a relationship with you. You know, it calls you by his name. And I think you see that most in the example and conversion of Saul. So that was just my point on that. Yeah, so one... One last thing to to point out that at least that I thought of was, and I, I touched on this, I think a little bit already, but just the idea of the patience that a follower of Jesus is called to and how that is contrasted with the, well, if I want to get things done in life, I need to be hurried. I need to be worried. I need to take matters into my own hands and I need to make it happen at any cost. Like as long as I make that happen, that's the end, end goal. Whereas patience allows for a lot of things to not happen either immediately or right when we want them to or something like that. But ultimately patience is again, putting ourselves back under the care and provision of God and his good, goodwill and his wisdom and all that. And being patient, seems like an oddball in, in our world, especially the like microwavable, like automatic instant access on demand sort of thing. Like being patient. I mean, I've caught myself even just this morning. I mean, I, I still, I mean, I say this sarcastically or jokingly, but like, it seems like printers are demonically possessed. Like <laughs> there's something spiritual that they never connect and whatever. And I get it. There's technology and it's wireless and all that. But so I was printing something off this morning and I'm thinking about how I'm I, I can see the data thing on the printer blinking. Like I know it sent it, but I'm like waiting, waiting, waiting and it's not coming out. And I'm like already like getting frustrated of like, why won't it just come out? Like, cause you know, from my experience, it, it has come out more sooner than that before. But I'm all of a sudden I caught myself thinking about how, this document that's on a screen, so it's a bunch of pixels to start with on a machine and it's wirelessly sending this data that's going to an actual physical thing I'm going to pick up and hold. The amount of just like, poof, like, you know, just like how many years ago people would think you're nuts to even describe this reality, like how like insanely like cool and awesome that is. And yet I'm sitting here frustrated that it won't work. And it all, I mean, and we're talking like my new amount of waiting here. It's not like I had to wait years or months or whatever. We're talking about like maybe a minute or so, like, but you know, we're conditioned to just be like, no, it's gotta happen now. And, but a lot of that harkens back to like us making things happen and that we don't want to be under someone else's either timeline, but all that, a lot of that harkens back to like, we think we know what's best for us. Whereas patience ultimately has to do with like submitting ourselves under God's control because ultimately he knows what's best for us and knows when we need things, when we need it and, and how to use it and all that kind of stuff. But we miss all that if we're not patient. But the world that thinks it's accomplishing a whole bunch of stuff by being hurried or making it happen right away or plowing itself through. And so you just see those differences of like 
how God's way is just very upside down from the way the world is. You want to touch on that one at all? No, I don't think I have anything to add to that. All right. I wanted to point back to one thing we talked about earlier. And I think one thing that can often come up in probably talking about this is, well, that's good for Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. He's God in flesh. Of course he can live this different way in it. And that's all, that's all good for him. But like, it's just unrealistic for my life. Like living the, this way is just unrealistic. Like there's just no, like, and even saying it's unrealistic, I think for most of us, there's still an appeal. Like, man, if I could have a patient life, like that'd be awesome. Like we, we long to have patient lives or to be people who are merciful or people who can love others unconditionally to an nth degree. Like we long to be people who are that kind of people. But yet we're so conditioned and tempted by the world to process life in, in our imagination is the show so shallow that it's like, but I would never be able to do anything if that's the way I lived. And yet it seems like Jesus is inviting us into like taste and see essentially like you, it looks like that from the outside and it looks like that because that's all you've been conditioned to think, but trust my way and, and see that it can be different. You want to touch on that at all? Yeah, I just like the irony in the the statement of like, well, this is just not realistic for my life. It's like, well, yeah, that's kind of the point. Like, <laughs> that's exactly the point. And if it's unrealistic for your life, you know, maybe Jesus is calling you to change your lifestyle. Like, that's also the point. And he fills us of his spirit to be able to, like Jordan said, taste and see what God has in store for us, to be able to be shaped into the image of his son. It's not like we're doing this on our own, and it's that world worldview of like, oh, as I need to manifest this. Like, and somehow, you know, I, I need to be more like Jesus by what I do. And it's like, really, it's more about letting God fill you up and shape you, and then also making the disciples' choices of denying yourself, picking up your burdens, and following after Christ on a daily basis. I mean, your life shouldn't look the same outside of Christ and in Christ. So it it is unrealistic for everyone's life, I guess, because human lifestyle necessarily changes when Christ is added to it. I mean, that's part of the package, and that's a good thing. It's not like something that we should labor toward or it's well it is something we should labor towards it's not something we should dread i mean it's life-giving commands that we've been um given and i i think that's something important to consider yeah i mean and oddly there is some like freedom even in the the way in which jesus calls us to live like to be a patient person means you then don't you have you can give up the effort of being angry or all the effort it takes to manipulate a situation you don't have to <laughs> you know you can you can trust i mean it doesn't mean you, you don't have to do anything or just being passive but there's a, there's a lot of energy we put toward things that ultimately don't they either don't help or they're not healthy for us or they're not healthy for other people and in the end it's like we put all that effort in either chaos or destruction can come out of it or hurt or pain or whatever. Whereas God's inviting us to a way that, yeah, it's hard to, to do it because it's different than the way of the world. But there's also this peace that we get to experience in the wake of it. And yeah, it, 
yeah, a lot, a lot of it to me ultimately comes down to like taste and see, try it out, and see. And it's until we do that, until we're willing to take like that kind of step of faith to live into these these ways that into the way of Jesus that it's just theoretical or it's just a concept, but it's until you actually participate in trying to see what it's like that that you get to experience the goodness that comes from following Jesus in that way. Well, today is actually Mitch's birthday. So we're recording this on Tuesday, October 26th. So happy birthday, Mitch. What are, are you going to do anything special for your birthday or what are your plans for the rest of the day here? Uh, well, now that I'm 17 years old, I'm going to go see my first R-rated movie in theaters. Uh, no, so I, I'm turning 26 today. The passion, today. of course. It's like, I've turned, <laughs> I've turned 26. Um, so later I'm going to have some red lobster with my mom. Have some seafood, treat yourself, you know, and, uh, it's pretty uneventful. Uh, I think throughout the week there's going to be a lot more get togethers surrounding my birthday. So it's like more of like a birthday week with today being the least eventful day, ironically, but you know, just going to enjoy it, relax and, uh, think about how the next time my birthday's on a weekend, I'll be 30. So. All right. Well, have a happy birthday. Hope the rest of the day is well and all your other celebrations. But thanks for taking time to to have this conversation today and focusing on and thinking about following Jesus and what that means for our daily life. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time. Bye, everybody.